do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? There are some cities so doused in lore that they develop their own legacies, their own feelings, their own recognizable soundtracks. Even if you haven't been there, New Orleans street jazz, New York City traffic, San Francisco's trolleys, and of course, my favorite city to visit, Las Vegas. Hello, welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show. I'm your host, resident criminal, addicted person, PhD, and gambler, Ben Boyce. And today's episode is about Las Vegas, a city with no 13th floors and a wheel in every building with numbers totaling 666. That's roulette for those who have never done the math. I'm a sucker for Glitter Gulch, whether it's 116 degrees in August or 35 in February. It's hard to be miserable when you're surrounded by what the rest of the country calls Sin City. Gambling, partying, dancing, performance, sex, drugs, music, magic, they all bleed together into the stuff of Las Vegas. If you haven't been there, put it on your bucket list. Or better yet, put it on your next spring list. There are hotels on the north side of town where you can spend the night for around 50 bucks. Flights are less than 30 from some places. It might, ironically, be both the most affordable and the most expensive place in the country to visit on vacation. Now, it's hard to overhype a city with 15 of the 20 largest hotels on the planet, but Las Vegas is a lot more than just the so-called Strip. In fact, gambling was outlawed in Nevada shortly after Las Vegas was incorporated in 1911. Imagine what it would have been like back then, without air conditioning. It wasn't a very popular tourist trap. Not yet, anyway. But in 1931, they re-legalized gambling mostly because it was going on anyway, and the state wasn't getting any tax revenue from it. The Hoover Dam, it was originally called the Boulder Dam, it's around 35 miles from Vegas, and construction began on it that year. So legalizing gambling was also a really good way to get workers with fat paychecks to head to Vegas for the weekend. The first gambling license was issued to the Northern Club, but a few other hotels in the area were quick to follow suit, and Las Vegas was born. It didn't take long for the city to become a gambling destination, but it also had another draw, one which led to its infamous nickname, Sin City. That name showed up when the state of Nevada passed liberal divorce laws in the early 1900s, laws which allowed couples to break up much easier than they could in other states, but only if they first established residence by living in Nevada for at least six weeks. Many early resorts survived by catering to the six-week stay divorce crowd, at least at first. The dune ranches where they stayed, as in sand dunes, because back then that's all there was out there, they were precursors to the modern strip. That strip, with the MGM Grand, the Bellagio from Ocean's Eleven, Mandalay Bay, the pyramid-shaped Luxor, the infamous Caesar's Palace, which is across the road from Bugsy Siegel's old joint, the Flamingo, that stretch of concrete is the place that most people imagine when they think of Las Vegas. It's what shows up in our commercials and movies whenever a character heads there. The first hotel to open up there was the El Rancho in 1941, a little joint with just 63 rooms that boasted full resort air conditioning. The next hotel was Bugsy Siegel's infamous Flamingo, which opened in 1946. Bugsy was murdered a year later, likely because of his mismanagement. But by 1957, the strip was exploding, 
The Sahara, the Sands, and half a dozen other hotels and casinos were up and running. Las Vegas, Nevada can boast of many things, and rightfully so. This resort hotel on the famous strip is known the world over for its warm and friendly atmosphere. Here the visitor will learn that recreation is truly unlimited. By 1954, millions of people were visiting Las Vegas every year, pumping millions of dollars into the gambling industry. But that glamorous big hotel section, the area called the Strip, that we usually think of when someone says Las Vegas, that isn't actually Las Vegas. So today I want to talk about the real Las Vegas, just a couple of miles north of those hotels. Fremont Street, or Glitter Gulch, was the first paved street in Las Vegas, and it had the first traffic light as well as the first telephone. There's still an honorary plaque buried in the sidewalk outside the Golden Gate Hotel, which opened in 1906, and is the smallest hotel still operating on Fremont Street. And Fremont Street is where this episode really begins, because it's the heart of Las Vegas. It's the real Vegas. It's like Bourbon Street, widened and surrounded by casinos, with a high-definition roof overhead playing psychedelic visuals all day. The music is always blaring, the lights are always bright, and possibility is always in the air. As you can probably tell, I love Las Vegas. It's one of my favorite drugs. But like many drugs, the first time I used it, it didn't sit right with me. In 2015, I made my first real trip to the city, and I hated it. I was finishing my PhD, and I tagged along with some friends to the annual National Communication Association Conference held in the massive Rio Hotel. On a side note, there's a great view from the back parking lot, and it's free. The city was bananas. It always is. The sidewalks are cluttered and packed with drunk people. The casinos blow air conditioning out wide open doors, inviting tourists to step in, cool off, and try their luck. The performers are integrated into the fanfare. You can't walk half a block without bumping into a go-go girl or a transformer offering to pose for a photograph. And everything is both free and expensive at the same time. The street performers don't charge anything for a pick. But if you try to take one and refuse to offer them a few bucks as a tip, you're a jerk and they'll probably let you know it. The casinos are free to enter and spectacular to tour, but you'll find yourself circling back around to the gambling floor, almost as if the building was designed to keep you there. Because it is. And the real fuck begins when you sit down and pony up, and that gets expensive fast. The same restaurants found across the country are speckled along the strip. Both strips, actually. Fremont Street has its own. But the food, drinks, and entertainment are twice the price of normal town USA. There's no reason why you can't just stop at a grocery store on your way to the hotel for some affordable food, but most visitors just don't. Most people don't even rent a car. They just stay on the strip. The entire downtown area is designed to feel like a trap, to force vacationers to stop worrying about the price tag and eat wherever it's convenient. It's easy to forget that there's an entire town outside the mega resorts and shopping malls. There's an illusion that everything is for sale in Las Vegas, and to some degree, I suppose everything is for sale. Unless you look like a cop, you won't make it a day without somebody walking past you and mumbling, I got that blow, meth, coke, heroin, you need anything? There are phone numbers written on garbage cans along the strip, advertising, any drug you want, call this number. Locals stand on the sidewalks and hand out coupons for local strip clubs. The smell of weed comes and goes, both outside and inside the casinos, only erased at times by the overwhelming stench of non-stop tobacco smoke. It's weird to think I didn't like a city like this the first time I visited. I mean, it's a place that I love now, but I get now why it struck me as so off-putting. 
Just like with drugs, I'd been told a lie my entire life. In this case, it was a lie of civility, a tale about how to behave and the consequences of failing to follow those rules. The social contract, I'd been told, was fragile and demanding. The only thing keeping the wheels from falling off was our collective commitment to follow the rules. The second you go to Vegas, no, the second you get to the terminal to board your flight to Vegas, even though you're still in your own city, that illusion is shattered. My upbringing taught me that places where vice was embraced were doomed to self-destruction. That if God didn't get them first, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, then the city would collapse under the weight of its own immorality. Now, of course, I don't believe any of that crap anymore. If you've been listening for any length of time, you've probably already heard me rail about hateful Bible stories like that one. But it doesn't matter what I consciously think. The damage was done years before I recognized I was being programmed up at all. By my family, my church, and the larger society around me. I was taught to believe things that weren't true, and to never acknowledge or notice the fact that I'd been taught it all. That those beliefs were not just natural feelings which all people share. I might have been able to weed out the homophobic stories of death and destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah, but I still had a lot of work to do therapeutically to understand why I felt so out of place the first time I hit the strip. Here I was, looking at a town that seemed to thrive on vice. All the pieces were in place, and the machine appeared to be churning away effortlessly. What the hell? Sigmund Freud studied the process through which we channel our guilt at being human, the embarrassment we feel when we unavoidably experience entirely human emotions or desires. We want to smoke cigarettes or pot, or we really want to have a drink at 10am, but we've been taught that such desires are dangerous and evil, even antisocial. So we deny ourselves, shutting down our Freudian id with an egotistical no that works well most days. That is, so long as everyone around us isn't answering the same questions with a firm and public yes. In Las Vegas, there's an awful lot of people answering all of the id's questions with a yes. Author Dave Hickey has said that the whole city floats on a sleek frisson of anxiety and promise that those of us addicted to such distractions must otherwise induce by motion or medication. I don't know if I've ever heard it said any better. Las Vegas gets you high. It's not just the cigarettes and the booze. It's gambling 24-7. It's hitting the club at 4 a.m. It's go-karts and new joints and zip lines and helicopter rides. You can even drive south of town and shoot fully automatic machine guns, all for a price. But even if you don't have the cash to do all of those expensive things, the city still offers the glam of seeing your favorite actor in a casino, or of just feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Here's what I didn't understand until years later, and by then I had reassessed my original feelings and fallen in love with the city. Most of the things you can do in Vegas are not unique to the city. You can find casinos, strip clubs, drug dealers, sex workers, fistfights, and go-karts in Denver, where I live, or in nearly any other city in the United States. But Las Vegas is a city where such vices are on full display. They're sort of advertised as the city's calling card. As a repressed, taught-to-be-well-behaved citizen of the United States, I didn't know what to do with this blatant display of hedonism the first time I saw it. I'd been told that such places would quickly descend into chaos and calamity, yet here it was, wheels spinning, tourists betting away like nothing was wrong. My operating system was calibrated to any town suburbia, but these folks were performing Vice Town USA with perfection. 
It was all overwhelming. Like a meal or a drink that one grows to love, Las Vegas stuck in my head. I went back a year later to ride ATVs in the desert north of the city, and on that trip, I got my bearings. And something weird happened. I started to get it. To feel the vibe of the city as I wandered from casino to casino, sometimes kind of lost, and other times completely turned around. The city could be about blowing money and eating at fancy restaurants. If that's what you're looking for, you won't be disappointed. But it can also be about people gazing, or free roaming, or casual reunions, or exploring the surrounding desert. Vegas may be Sin City to many, but it can be any city you want. There are topless pools on the roof of some resorts, brothels just beyond the city limits, and marijuana is now legal for those over the age of 21. But there are also megachurches and museums and desert sand dunes and sculptures, the stuff of culture, spirituality, and life. Nowadays I think of Las Vegas as a looking glass through which to view the rest of the United States. Reactions to nearly nude go-go girls or to marijuana being smoked openly are ironic because most of the tourists who feign indignation don't have to come to the desert to find that sort of behavior. The go-go girls and street performers on Las Vegas Boulevard are also on Main Street, USA. But they're behind closed doors, so you can spend your cozy life burying your head in the sand and not acknowledging that such things exist in your little town. But they do. Las Vegas is about making the invisible visible. It's about exposing the normally repressed, reveling in the mundane in an effort to make it feel novel. We all go there to get what we could have got at home. In his essay, A Home in the Neon, Las Vegas local Dave Hickey explained that the secret of Las Vegas is that there are no secrets. There are only two rules, post the odds and treat everybody the same. Dave points out that the United States is a poor lens through which to view Las Vegas, but that Las Vegas is a wonderful lens through which to view the United States. He says, what's hidden elsewhere exists here in quotidian visibility. So when you fly out of Las Vegas to, say, Milwaukee, the absences imposed by repressions are like holes in your vision. They become breathtakingly perceptible, and, as a consequence, there's no better place than Las Vegas for a traveler to feel at home. The city sticks to you, physically and emotionally, its filth contrasted with splendor. Touch most of the exposed surfaces outdoors, and you'll probably find a layer of black soup stuck to your hands, plastic and rubber glued to every surface it lands on by unrelenting sunlight. It'll make its way into your clothes, onto your face, and into your hair. Las Vegas is literally sticky. Many of the businesses go out of their way to power wash sidewalks and parking garages, but the filth just shows back up, especially in the summer months, when the temperatures can top 115 degrees regularly. Las Vegas is the world's playground, and that's exactly how a lot of people treat it. Every parking lot is covered with beer, booze, piss, and food. The discarded garbage of party-hardy tourists looking to get back to mindless entertainment. And that entertainment is everywhere. As soon as you deboard the plane, you'll run into a bank of slot machines. And that is why we go. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm in the city is to get the hell out of the city. Drive north up the I-15, and when it looks like the city is ending, you'll hit a place called Apex. And south of the city is the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead. Both are worth the trip. And all this stuff is free, like all the best things in Vegas. You can't see a nuclear test anymore from your hotel balcony. The last one of those was in 1963, although they kept blowing them up underground until 92 near the city. Kind of fitting. This isn't a what to do when you're in Vegas episode, but there is a single piece of advice I'll offer anyone who tells me that they're visiting the city. 
along with all the other things that your hometown probably has plenty of behind closed doors, Vegas has a huge homeless population, and the reason is probably obvious. The climate is a big part of it. If you were homeless and forced to live outside at times, where would you go? I'd probably head south, to some place where I wouldn't be freezing all night. And I'd probably stop in a town like Vegas, because it's a place where people are often in a giving mood, having won a big jackpot or just blown 500 bucks on dinner. But most tourists just ignore the homeless population, or they jeer and mock. Again, just like back home. So here's that one piece of advice I'll offer. Because aside from preparing to be blown away, there isn't much that most people can do to effectively prepare for the sensory overload that they're about to immerse themselves in. If you're spending, gambling, eating out, and having a good time, good for you. You're in the right place. But ask the first cashier you talk to for $51 bills. Or, if you can afford it, for fives. Fold them up and keep them in one of your back pockets. And then give them away to every person you meet who's asking for money. And trust me, along with the golden statues and extravagant fountains, you'll see tons of people begging for money. Break that spell of invisibility that so many U.S. citizens just learn to perform. That just walk by and keep your eyes on the ground shit. We can do better than that. The homeless, the addicted, the outcast, the mentally ill, we're all people just like you. I still find it hard to believe I'm not living out there on the streets, relying on the good-heartedness of strangers. The odds 25 years ago put me either there or in prison. So maybe that's why I have such a hard time just walking by the cardboard sign that says anything helps. So that's Vegas in a nutshell. A little bit of kindness goes a long way. If you see me there, say hello. I'll be wandering the woodwork of Glitter Gulch, disappearing into the poetry and motion that is Las Vegas. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. what it means to miss New Orleans and miss it each night and day. Benny may be wrong, but the feeling's getting stronger the longer Benny stays away from New Orleans. <laughs> miss the moss-covered vines, the tall sugar pines, where mockingbird used to sing Ben would like to see that lazy Mississippi not the Colorado hurrying <laughs> on down, down, down to spring the moonlight on the bayou a Cajun tune that fills the air Bernard dreams of magnolias in June. Soon he's wishing he was right here. Oh, yeah.